0: Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host Kate Price McCarthy.
1: Hi there Hattie, good to see you. I hope you're not being blown away by the windy weather today. And although it's only November, it's already feeling quite Christmassy. In fact, yesterday I made my booking for a pre-Christmas grocery delivery, so I'm feeling super organized, although it won't last. It'll come to the middle of December and I won't have got anybody's Christmas presents. I love this time of year because I always try and save up some leaves so I can take a nice chunk of leave and sit down in an armchair after Christmas and read as many books as I can on my to be read pile. So. What is going to be on your pile to read?
0: Oh my goodness, so many things. I've got, I don't know if you do the uh, Goodreads annual challenge, but I set myself a target, an unachievable target of books this year, and I'm I'm nowhere near, so I'm going to have to pack in a few short stories.
1: What was your target that you're
0: not going to reach? 30. which is so doable but I'm a terrible like reading procrastinator I've usually got about five or six books on the go at any one time so I really want to read the book of form and emptiness which was the women's prize winner this year and I want to read the seven moons of Mali Almeida which is the booker winner for this year But for now, I'm going to take it slow and actually I've just got my notification that the third instalment in the Richard Osman Thursday Murder Club series is ready to download on BorrowBox. So I reserved it a few weeks ago and it's been unavailable until now because it's such a popular book, such a popular series. So I'm looking forward to listening to what all our favourite wholesome characters get up to this time around.
1: Well, I've just finished reading The Bullet That Missed, the book you're talking about. So that might be why it's suddenly become free on Boroughbox, And I'm already really missing the Thursday murder gang, and I'm hoping Richard Osman finishes the next one as soon as possible.
0: And if you're looking for a chance to relax and unwind while listening to a great story, you can pop into Winchester Library, where our teams will be hosting Read Aloud events on a regular basis. So these events are a bit of a revival of the storytelling tradition, a kind of story time for grown-ups and we'll include a selection of classic and modern tales being shared in a warm and welcoming space so you can visit our website to find out more and we'll pop a link in the show notes so you can visit it there and thank you to our supporter borrow box the library app that lets you download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet
1: Now, today's episode of Love Your Library brings an interview with Olivie Blake, who joined Hattie for a chat about the follow-up to her hugely popular sci-fi fantasy novel, The Atlas Six.
0: Yeah, so we mentioned this one in last month's episode during our little book chat with Ollie from Petersfield Library. And The Atlas Paradox is set to be just as popular as its best-selling predecessor. I spoke to Olivie about her journey into writing and how she crafts such fascinatingly complex characters that you're engineered to hate because they're all horrible. <laughs> and she's a self-published author as well. And we spoke a little bit about that. Really interesting to hear from her. So yeah, looking forward to sharing that with you. And then later on, we'll be chatting to library team assistant Emma about her biographical book recommendation.
1: And you can find all the books we mentioned during the episode in our show notes. But let's get on with the episode. Here is Hattie chatting to Olivia Blake.
0: Hello, and Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So before I get started, actually, I'd like to know with our authors who join us from across the pond in the States, do you know anything about Hampshire? Has your book research ever led you to anywhere around um, the South of England other than, other than London, perhaps?
2: Uh, no, definitely nothing specific. Although I am coming back to the UK in November, I plan to expand my knowledge of the South of England is what I'm saying.
0: that's an exciting answer and I'm sure some of our listeners will catch you when you're on tour over here that'll be fun yeah that'd be great yeah because I would like to say that we're going to be talking about the sort of second book in your one of your series the Atlas Six Atlas Paradox is the second book there's a lot of characteristics and elements of that story and the settings there that are very kind of like English and traditional and kind of that dark academia vibe, which is definitely very present in some of our older institutions around Hampshire. So potentially some familiarity there. But yeah, just leaning into that, I guess. My first question would be to let you tell our listeners a little bit about the series and about the book. So I'll leave you to it.
2: Sure. So the Alice Six is about six extraordinary once in a lifetime magicians who all get tapped for the Alexandrian Society which is a secret society, the keepers of lost knowledge from the Library of Alexandria and on throughout history. So my fantasy version of the world involves a situation where instead of the Library of Alexandria burning down, we continued to contribute to it. And so, <laughs> so leaving out you know, small details of imperialism and whatnot, we still got to continue developing what turns out to be you know, more advanced science and, and magic. And my world is one of those where magic is a little bit more like a science. So it also makes the assumption that we've been able to avoid some of the really disastrous effects of climate change by using magic as an alternative technology. But these particular six magicians are <laughs> so The so the Atlas series is a very it's a very human driven book. So as much as I have opened with um, like ah, and I've used science. It's still mainly about these six people and their relationships to each other. And it is slightly pulpy by design in that it's kind of, I call it a six-person love story and also a slightly deranged family drama because what's most most important while we are questioning the ethics of the world and and looking at sort of the philosophy of how to be moral, we're also very interested in who might kiss or kill one of the others or all of the others.
0: I think that is a fantastic description of the kind of intertwined relationships uh, set upon this very fantastical backdrop. So fans of the first book, of which there are many, 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 by the way, it's um, been a a bit of a smash hit, really. For people expecting the second book, is the second book going to be a sort of continuation of the intertwined six-person love story of the first
2: Definitely. So I actually think of this is a trilogy. And I think of it as one long story that's been broken up into three parts just for purposes of, you know, paper. So book two picks up right where book one leaves off, we've left on sort of a cliffhanger. So jumping back in now there is a so one of the reasons I chose six is because hexagons are a very common shape in nature, and they're very strong. They're a very strong shape. And I was also a little bit influenced by tarot in a strange way. Just, you know, all of this is a little bit arcane, but I I specifically wanted to take this very strong six to a, a much weaker five. Like there's something about like the the five of swords, for example, is like a card that essentially means betrayal. And so that's where we're, that's where we're going. I obviously, I'm trying not to give away too many spoilers. So I'm, I'm more trying to set the, the tone. The tone for book two is is things have been shaken up, alliances are shifting, the group that was always having to eliminate someone has instead, they've lost a little bit of their agency, that choice has been ripped away from them. And now they have to deal with what's happened. And for at least some of them have to live in the house with someone that's, you know, functionally their ex. So like I said, hopefully by design, but I'm just always very, very interested in in the human element. To me, as much as the series is asking questions about what to do when the world is ending, to me, what always feels like a personal crisis, that's when the world feels like it's ending. So that's where we're living. It's in these characters' heads as they're realizing that everything they once knew is upended.
0: Mm. And I think it's a fantastic way of exploring that philosophical take or the the study in human nature, which readers or fans of this genre might typically expect a good versus evil fight for that kind of victory. And at least from the first book, it's not really what it seems to be trying to achieve. So how did you go about coming up with that as your underpinning concept? Was it something that you always wanted to write?
2: So for those who don't know, The Atlas Six was originally self-published, and I was not at all making a career in self-publishing. I was just releasing books that were interesting to me. So this series is born from what is interesting to me personally, which I did not expect to have any mass appeal. And what I was wondering about was, well, I was just sort of, I wrote this in the winter of 2019. Not that politics are ever not difficult, but they were particularly difficult at that time in the United States. And what feels like everywhere, you know, the, the rise of really polarized, extremely right wing politics was kind of where I was coming from. And I was also trying to decide whether it was ethical to bring a baby into a world where I could not guarantee certain freedoms or rights or safety. So I was very tired, I was very tired of the good versus evil argument, because I don't think that it's a productive way to continue working through the world. You know, I sort of came from this assumption that, all right, so we already know the world is ending, our definition of the world, we know it's ending, we know that it's untenable as it is. And so what is our motivation to keep going? And, you know, my private answer to that is that it's never about the world, it's your world as the people who are in it, for better or worse. (laughs) <laughs> in in the atlas series that's often for worse but yeah no it, it just came down to what was interesting to me and and i think that what i have observed in my life is that everyone you know everyone is their own unreliable narrator there really are no true heroes and villains there are people who think of themselves as heroes who are other people's villains there are people who accept that they are villains but still can make ethical choices in the moment and that was the sort of, you know, gray morality is something we we pass around a lot as like a trope or a motif. But that was something that I was really working with, with what what does it actually mean to be moral? And especially with book two, we now have a split timeline. So what that means for the characters in the book is that one of them is about to realize that their choices are sort of already made for them. And it it kind of shifts what does ethics really mean? Because being ethical in the moment, when you know what the future is going to be, that really changes how you behave. So yeah, so it was, to me, it was just this continuous lens of like, what does it mean to make the next right choice, which is a very, a very cerebral answer for, you know, 8am on this Love Your Libraries podcast, which by the way, I do love my library, I was essentially raised by my library. So well, that's that's rude to say to my mother, but you know, <laughs> spend a lot of time in my library. I think these books are proof of how much I love to ruminate to almost the point of existential meaninglessness. I promise the books are interesting, more interesting than that sounds.
0: (laughs) Oh, don't be silly. I think that they are very interesting. And I think one thing that it really does come across is that what you were saying about grey morality, it was kind of like as a reader, do you want to identify with any of these people? Or do you kind of identify with all of them in small ways at moments in your life? Anyway, people getting inside their heads and having a good route around can only be for the better. So I think that's very good. So you've kind of mentioned already your journey into writing a little bit. You're coming from a background of self-publishing, but I read that before that, long before that, you uh, were a law student and you were on a slightly different pathway. So how did this all begin then?
2: Yeah, so for another another clarity, so law school in the United States is postgraduate. So I went to, went to college, got my master's in urban planning, thinking that I was going to be this, you know, essentially civil servant. I, I fell in love with basically the City Beautiful movement which it had its equivalent in Europe. But in the US, that's when a lot of like the very famous parks were designed or like the, the very scenic Michigan Avenue stretch in Chicago, all of those were designed at around the same time. And I think I fell in love with it from a very aesthetic point of view. You know, when I was 17, went to school realized that the actual work of city planning was not really for me, you know, it was a very nine to five, I remember the thing that one of my professors used as a microcosm, because right away, one of my professors pulled me aside and was like, you're not going to like this, there's not going to be like enough for you to play with here mentally. Like these are not thought experiments. (laughs) They used the example of a professional lifelong urban planner that they knew had been working on this same freeway extension. It's the 710 freeway extension in Pasadena, which does not exist and has not existed. And this person worked on it for I think their career of 40 years or something. So every single day they came to work, worked on this project that never happened and then very happily retired because that that makes sense. Like you do, you contribute your part. But for me, that wasn't going to be enough. I really wanted to make more of an an impact, I guess I wanted to do something more meaningful. So this professor advised I go to law school, which I did, but law school is also not really the right place for, you know, in in my undergrad program, we were, we were very much rewarded for our imaginations, because we were essentially academia, and this feeds into the way I write these books academia is like a theater for the real world. It's like you pre- get presented with a problem and they tell you solve it. And then you get an A if you can come up with the most creative way to solve this that could never in real life actually happen. We would get you know exam questions that were like, fix gentrification. And we'd be like, okay. And then I went to law school where you're very hampered by the law and what is already codified and you can't go beyond what has already provided for you by precedent. I imagine that's especially true in England, where there's the unwritten constitution. But anyway, (laughs) so you can only make decisions based on decisions that have been made previously, which is like trying to fix things with your hands tied behind your back. And I just knew it wasn't for me. I worked in criminal defense. So I was a public defender. So for people who who can't afford their own lawyer and in a very racially and economically stratified part of Chicago, So I was really just looking at injustice every single day, realizing there was nothing I could do about it. It was hard for me professionally. It was hard for my mental health. So I ended up dropping out of law school and I didn't know right away that I wanted to be a writer. It was more something that hit me later on where I realized that I had sort of all these stories. My job essentially with each of these clients was to create a narrative. In criminal defense, that's essentially what you're doing. You're crafting a narrative to explain to a judge or, or a jury why this person is innocent or guilty. And the narrative that was forming in my head was the world is extremely unfair and, and the systems and the institutions are just horrifying. And the way we treat mental health is terrible. And it was just sort of this piling up of problems that became stories like this one where the medicine is sort of in the setting, the laws that I see in various institutions or in capitalism are built into the way I produce the world. But the story itself is the people and their lives, which is what was very true to me in my my legal work. So
0: do you find it as a sort of almost like a release then getting your thoughts down on paper, getting your frustrations at these inequalities and these kind of systemic issues, manifesting solutions on pages?
2: I definitely do. It is like, this is the, this is technically the most power I can possibly feel because I can sort of solve things on the page, but it's, yeah, there, there are definitely days when I ask myself if what I'm doing is meaningful. (laughs) And, but I also think that there are a lot of people who are better equipped to save the world than I am, or to save parts of the world than I am. And if I can tell a story to them that inspires them, then it's sort of, you know, I'm the intermediary, but at least I'm doing my part. This, this feels like the most effective work I personally can possibly do. And I'm hoping that other people execute it much, much better. Well,
0: I think that's an interesting point to make about contributing to the world with your passion in, in the best way you can do. And one thing I kind of picked up on while you were speaking about your initial background and stuff, one of my favorite writers is Arundhati Roy, who wrote The God of Small Things. Amazing book. Love that book. Mm-hmm. She was originally a city planner. And so I find it so interesting to hear these careers that authors have that are founded on things like layering and structures and tying Things together, you know, roads and passageways and things like that, that are almost engineering, mechanical in a way. So I wonder if there's an element of that thinking, of that kind of mindset that brings you to being a successful author as well.
2: Definitely for me, I was doing less of the mechanics type work, but a lot of what you have to do, especially in the United States, in order to do any sort of urban planning, (laughs) requires understanding the community and the neighborhood and what people in that area need and how to. Address those problems, and that that idea of how people use faith was definitely. It was such a big part of my education, and such a huge part of the way I view the world. That I think all of everything I do, it's very very people driven. Everything is interconnected, and everyone is connected, whether they see it that way or not. And yeah, certainly, I I don't think of myself as a very mechanically able person. <laughs> I'm definitely a, I'm definitely a panther when it comes to writing, but I do, I I think that you're right. I always tell aspiring writers that pretty much 90% of writing is having something to say. And so that means that coming at it doesn't require a formal literature background, not the same way it used to. I think a lot of people come to writing in very interesting ways from different backgrounds and different ways of viewing the world. And I think that's just so, so valuable.
0: Mm, Definitely. And I guess, do you think because you've had this sort of non-traditional, let's say, way into writing, the kind of self-publishing route, I notice as well, you've got a huge amount of presence on very popular social media platforms. There's thousands and thousands of videos about your work on TikTok, and you give writing advice on YouTube and things like that does that come easily to you and do you think that that's changed your experience of being a writer compared to if you'd have been sought out by you know gone to an agency gone to a publisher to start off with and maybe they'd asked you then to do your own social media and stuff from there
2: oh yeah definitely I mean a lot of this has just been, I guess I should specify, none of this has been planned. The YouTube series you mentioned, it's called All of You Blake is Not Writing. And I started doing it because it used to be, I started as a fan fiction writer. So I was very active on Tumblr. <laughs> Which is, is always funny for me to say, but I do still love Tumblr very much. People used to submit, you know, various writing questions. Fanfiction is very community driven. There's people who sort of come along for the ride and then stay, which is great. There's a real camaraderie, I guess, involved in it, and I think probably because it's free and something people do for the love of it. And so people started asking me questions about writing, and I used to write out those answers, and then like. <laughs> Every summer I get carpal tunnel because it like, because it gets so hot. And then it's something about like my joints swell or something. So one summer I was complaining to my husband. I was like, it just, my hands just hurt so much. I, I was writing like probably at least 10,000 words a day. Plus then I would answer all these Tumblr asks. And I always wanted to be, you know, if someone was going out of their way to talk to me, I always wanted to be as personal as I could and give them as much help as I could, which meant that I was then writing essays for everybody. And so he's like, why don't you just answer on video? And I was like, oh, okay. So then I started doing these YouTube videos. People continued to ask for advice. And It's funny to say that like my entire career has always been crowdsourced. That is, it has always been, you know, just me trying to, I don't know. It feels very, it feels very silly to say, but I've just always been here trying to tell a story and doing that in many different ways. And it just, like I said, it seems like the most effective thing that I personally could do. I think there's a lot of asking ourselves, like, are we on the right path? That was certainly a question I asked myself a lot while I was trying to be a writer, which looked very much like failing to be a writer. And I just kept answering myself that, you know, whether or not this is the right path. It's the only path that feels right. And therefore, I have to make it the right path somehow. So yeah, certainly an argument for following your passion, even though it will often seem like you're going nowhere.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that that is the eternal struggle of being a writer. But along that vein, one question that I have because it's such a rich genre it's got so much potential in so many directions you know science fiction fantasy there's so many directions you can take it in so what research do you do and what inspires you to go in the direction that you have you know with the, you mentioned the sort of arcane the tarot the hexagons and things like that
2: well here again I will profess my love for libraries because I'm just a very active reader I always have been a reader. I love that, you know, when I was a kid, reading was a very, very solitary activity and I was very isolated and alienated and a nerd. But now it's like become this wonderful social thing to read books and to share the experience of reading. I love that so much. I think that that is a lot of why social media has been so effective. But anyway, that's an aside. I just I read a lot. And I'm very open to a lot of different genres. My husband is a science teacher. So sometimes I'll just be curious in what he is reading, what he's learning about. He's also one of those people who gets very, very passionate and then, you know, has to talk to me about this thing that he just read. I feel like this is where you have to embrace the thing that drives you down the Wikipedia rabbit hole. It's very close to passion, I think. (laughs) it's not the same thing. So certainly, yeah, yeah, that thing that is probably counterintuitive to getting things done, which is a capitalistic influence anyway, so maybe ignore it. But this idea that you don't have to be productive all the time, and sometimes you're just following things because they're interesting to you. That is like the beauty of a library. That's just this house of information. And yeah, so with Atlas Six specifically, I was reading about time because I had been writing another book, Alone With You in the Ether. And I had this like sort of bananas time travel theory. And the more that that I was looking into it, the more I was like, actually, I'm I'm not completely off track. I'm just I've missed a little bit of this, like actual science, shocking, I've missed a little bit of real science. And then I ended up reading a lot about quantum groups. And I kept reading about the number six, and the number six kept coming up and quantum gravity. I read a lot of Carlo Rovelli, who is excellent. Love him. He's a physicist. And so for me, the books are each slightly different research, too. So the first book was a lot of, you know, theoretical physics, and then the second book was a lot of psychology. And you can tell by the, the table contents of each book is essentially the outline for that book. And so it gives a little hints as to what I was reading and researching. And then book three, which is written, but being revised, is a lot of philosophy. And, and a lot of this, obviously, I was writing about ancient knowledge. So a lot of this comes from ancient philosophy or mythology, and then following those threads from there. So yeah, essentially, what I found interesting is what I pursued. And because I wasn't writing this for anyone originally, it was just what I found interesting. So hopefully you find it interesting too.
0: The reviews, the views, the reading, it all speaks for itself. I think there's something really compelling about reading a piece of work where the writer was invested in the subject matter. I think people can tell that there's a passion, that that there's an interest there, because it goes into the depth that you want to have as a reader. So, I mean, you've mentioned quite a few of the other projects that you've been working on, book three, there is a section on your website on what you're writing, and it seems to be a lot. So what can we look forward to from you in the next few weeks, months, years?
2: So right now, my publisher tour is doing a lot of re-releases. So a lot of my backlist releases that were self-published are now being re-released in hardcover with new art, and they are edited. So (laughs) The Atlas Six was structurally and stylistically edited. These other books are just edited for style, just sort of elevating from my previous voice to my current one. And then I have, yes, the third Atlas book. I have another young adult novel under my real name, Lachene Farrell Fulmouth. Those books, like My Mechanical Romance and the next one, which is Twelfth Night, which is a remix of Twelfth Night, they have very 2000s teen rom-com vibes versus what I write for tour is more of that like crossover sci-fi that's like a fantasy world, but also very, very, (laughs) very much a product of my generation and the millennial ennui. So my characters are always like a little bit depressed, you know. (laughs) <laughs> but yes, yeah, my next standalone is also pretty sciencey. I think it's going to have very similar vibes to the Atlas Six, but it is an actual family plot rather than just a dysfunctional pseudo family.
0: Well, I, I think our listeners and the readers that we have in our libraries are going to absolutely lap those up. They all sound like fantastic additions to your collection. So, yeah, wishing you all the best of luck with those. And did I hear that there's a TV adaptation of Atlas Six on the way as well?
2: Yes, yes. For Amazon and with Star, which is a UK production company, So yes, very exciting. Not much I can say about it yet, though, but it's in the works.
0: Well, I think that is probably a great place to say thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to seeing all that you have to offer, hitting our shelves, hitting our TV screens soon.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This is great.
0: It was really, really good fun to chat with Olivie. She's a really nice guest to have. It's so nice to have international authors, even though recording it, the time difference makes it a bit challenging. We had a great chat.
1: Yeah, it is something that we've all got so used to now, interviewing people on Zoom, chatting to people on Zoom. It's something that we wouldn't have considered pre-pandemic. Getting much more familiar with using Zoom for meeting people and talking to people does have that real benefit that we can speak to people in Italy, in America, wherever they are. And it does break down those geographical barriers. But yeah, you still have the time difference as a problem.
0: Yeah, nothing a bit of coffee in the morning can't overcome.
1: (laughs) So moving on to the next part of our episode where we talk to Emma from Gosport Discovery Center. I can't wait to hear all about what she's been reading recently. Well, hi, Emma. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Lovely to be here. Now, we're really excited to hear which book you're recommending today. But before we do, can you just tell us a little bit about your role and the library that you work in?
3: Yeah, sure. So I'm a library team assistant at Gosport Discovery Centre, which is one of our biggest libraries in Hampshire. And my role here, as well as all the normal kind of rhyme times and greeting customers, I look after room bookings, social media and volunteers as well. So yeah, fairly busy, lots of different hats. (laughs) I find it fascinating the way that people think if they don't know about libraries,
1: they assume that being working in a library is very quiet and you just... (laughs) move books around and things like that. And then then you see rhyme time happening and you think, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. you definitely need a whole bunch of different skills to be to work mm-hmm. in a library than I, used to, uh, than I used to think. I love going to Gosport Discovery Centre. I haven't been there for a while, but I, it just seems to be such a central part of the community there. It must be a lovely mm-hmm. place to work.
3: Yeah, it really is. We've added the tagline community hub above the door because we are really very much community centre at the minute. We've got outside agencies like Citizens Advice and Age Concern borrow rooms from us. So people come into the library for all sorts of things that aren't just the library service. We've got a registry office here, so we get to meet lots of nice brand new babies, that sort of thing as well.
1: Mm, That's a really buzzing place. Anyway, so on to your book recommendation. You've gone for a biography of an incredibly popular author. And in fact, it's one we spoke about and it's an author we spoke about in a recent podcast episode. So can you tell the listeners what it is that you've chosen
3: and uh, what it's about? The book's called Terry Pratchett, A Life of Footnotes. It's the official biography and it's been written by Rob Wilkins, who was Terry Pratchett's personal assistant and is kind of carrying on that mantle now.
0: So what kind of inspired you to pick this one up then?
3: Well big Terry Pratchett fan. I've read all the Discworld books, met him at a signing when I was a teenager. So I kind of had to have it. I think I was the first on the waiting list when it appeared on the library catalogue. But I did give in and go and buy my own copy in the end because I felt sorry for all the people waiting. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's really lovely because it goes right back to his childhood. You get lots of anecdotes from his friends and family. And I'm about three quarters of the way through at the minute. So I haven't got to any of the very sad end of life things yet. I'm just at the very funny bits of all the little anecdotes you know he used to be a teenage librarian himself and help out his local library and they've got a plaque there now to say Terry Pratchett worked there as a librarian so that's quite nice and just yeah lots of very funny stories that we might not have got to hear before so yeah it's a good laugh. I hadn't realised so this is literally just out is it? Yes yeah I think within the last month or so I think it came out towards the end of October something like that so yeah fairly new.
1: And so, if the author was his personal assistant, did you say so? Is his writing style up to scratch if that's not his background?
3: Well, that's what's so interesting. So it reads very well. And although he was a personal assistant, he describes how by the end, because of Terry's Alzheimer's, he ended up actually dictating and typing. So he's quite used to um, sitting at the keyboard and producing text, albeit normally it's not his own authorial voice. What is nice is that he's made it really clear that he's working with the notes that Terry was making with him. So a lot of the book is actually Terry's own words, and he's retelling stories that Terry already had bullet pointed out. And he's just expanding. But it's fairly easy to read, although that wasn't his original background. You forget, I think they worked so closely together for such a long time, that there is a kind of a crossover with their voices anyway.
1: And do you get an insight with it about the way he worked creatively? Does it talk about his processes like that?
3: Yes. Yeah, very interesting. And I was really intrigued with the processes. Before I was working in the libraries, I used to be a creative writing A-level teacher. So it was really interesting to see, oh, what's his approach? Because we used to get the students to research how different writers went about it. And it's one of those things where there's so many varied approaches. So apparently Terry did not have notes or sticky notes or like, Plans or drafts, he just kept it all in his head and would sometimes write the ending and then just go, Right, how am I going to get to that? And every day would dictate the next section. I was quite pleased to find out he uses something called The Pit, which is something I do when I write as well, where he would sometimes write something that was very nice, but it didn't fit with the current novel. So he would put it in The Pit, he would cut and paste it out and go, That's interesting. Maybe I can go back and salvage it later. Maybe it will work its way into another book. And I thought that was really interesting. So yeah.
1: So, do you think it would be something that, uh, I, I know there's a certain library of different books that somebody who's an aspiring creative writer might go to, so do you think this would be another good source for inspiration for creative writing?
3: Yeah, potentially, especially just to show it's so different. Every writer approaches it so differently. You know, some writers are very mechanical. His approach was very much based on word count. Every day he would set himself targets. I will write 400 words, you know, or whatever the amount was that fluctuated over the years, which is really interesting. Whereas other people are like, well, I'm going to deal with this plot. or I will deal with this character. He was very much like, nope, let's hit the word targets and we'll tidy it up later. So that's quite a nice approach for people that just want to get it down and on the page.
1: I love that idea of the word count because uh, I think I've heard quite a few authors, they have this set word count and it almost frees you up because it doesn't matter if it's rubbish or not, you've just got to get something on the page. I hear Philip Pullman does something similar.
0: Oh, Again, a very like similar school of author there. I think there's this concept going a little bit off topic. This is what happens when we divert from the script. But there's this concept, I can't remember what it's called, but it's something about free writing. And the first thing that you're meant to do when you wake up is write, I think it's 250 words. And it's literally before you've even had a chance to think, you kind of just free write and it does something to your brain, it gets it going and it gets your creative juices flowing or, or it just gets your raw concepts down on the page. And I think it could be a diary or it could be something creative or it could be a story or something like that. And this sounds like a bit of an evolution of that concept. The title, A Life in Footnotes. Am I right in thinking that Terry Pratchett's writing style used a lot of footnotes?
3: Yes, famously. And the title itself, he's actually put the little asterisk that shows that there should be a footnote at the end of the title. So often in his novels, there would be little asides and funny extra jokes, or it might be a reminder of something from a former book, and there would just be footnotes everywhere. And if you go see the stage adaptations of the Discworld books, they actually have the narrator, they call her footnote, and she comes out and interrupts the story now and again and says, oh, just to let you know, this is what's happened in the background. You know, while they're changing scenery, she kind of comes out and narrates and says oh hi I'm footnote I'm just popping up to let you know this is what's going on so that's really nice to see it kind of continue in a biography as well which it's just kind of carrying on that idea
0: I love that I love that creative interpretation I find it amazing with plays anyway how they can like manifest written words into visuals I just think you've got to be got to have such a powerful mind to be able to do that anyway but that sounds really cool And with the kind of close relationship of it being written by his personal assistant, you say you've not quite reached the end where it presumably gets a bit more emotional and probably quite sad. Can you sense that deep emotional connection from the writer's perspective to the author?
3: Yeah, definitely. And that's the whole way through. It's become more so now I've got to the sections where Rob has actually met Terry. Obviously, the earlier sections where it's his childhood, he's mostly going from families, anecdotes and notes. But once we're hitting the bit where it's like, Terry said this happened, and then there's a little footnote and Rob goes, that's not how I remember it. This is how I remember it happening. So that's quite nice that you kind of see both sides of how they both remembered various instances. So That's been really nice. You definitely get the impression they're very close. He talks a lot about how they had lots of shared interests. So so I think originally Rob was actually working for the publishing company and Terry kind of nabbed him and was like, oh, you're good at computers. You can come around and fix my computer for me. And eventually he was like, I've had you seconded to me for so long. You're kind of my PA now. And um kind of stole them away but he does recount they got up to some bizarre things so although by the end he was doing lots of dictating and writing and helping aunt's fan mail in the early days i've just read a section where he talks about before the days of wi-fi they wanted to have a backup computer they dug a trench in the garden from the writer's shed so that they could have the computers talking to each other and that meant as pa he was literally there with a shovel digging holes and he's like this isn't what i thought this was gonna be so yeah it's lovely
0: Oh, I love hearing about stuff like that. It's kind of what we try and get out of authors on the podcast, actually, is those behind the scenes, funny stories, those little things you just would never know from seeing their writing on the page. That's amazing.
3: I don't often read biographies. I think the only other one by an author I've read in the last few years was Jeanette Winterson brought out one called Why Be Happy If You Can Be Normal, which was a really nice retelling of the oranges and not the only fruit. But now, rather than a fictionalised version, she was much more raw and going into details. So that was a real eye-opener, but not as funny as the Terry Pratchett one. It was quite a serious, heavy-going one. It's
1: interesting, though, because I'm a massive fan of the writer Elizabeth Jane Howard, and her series of books, The Cazalettes, was very autobiographical. And I was really excited when her autobiography came out called Slipstream. But actually, I found it really disappointing because she wasn't as able to be as honest in Slipstream. as She was in the fiction. The fiction allowed her to free herself to say whatever she wanted, whereas I felt she was still keeping a lot of the secrets to herself in her autobiography.
0: Mm. It is interesting. I think this is one thing I was thinking about when we were preparing to record this episode is autobiographies versus biographies. What is the benefit of each and what would you rather read the author's word but highly curated perhaps or highly edited as they are very you know capable of doing or is it the biography told from someone else's perspective that's going to give you a better insight
1: or is a fictionalized account that parallels their lives going to be even more powerful
0: I think you've already said that although you're not a biographies person, generally, it was the Terry Pratchett link here that really came into this one.
3: I think the first time I read an author biography, I read Don't Panic for Douglas Adams, who did The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it's only years later that I've looked on my shelf and I've seen who wrote it. It was Neil Gaiman. It was one of his early projects. And I was like, oh, look, they all link all my favourite authors. So yeah, that was a really nice surprise.
0: Wonderful. Okay, we've been talking about A Life in Footnotes* by Rob Wilkins, and that's about the life and works of Terry Pratchett. So what about you, Kate? What book are you going to recommend to our listeners today?
1: Well, I've chosen a very different subject. It's a book called Educated by Tara Westover, which came out about four years ago now. And it's the autobiography of a young American woman who had the most extraordinary childhood. She was in a family that was totally dominated by this survivalist father And they lived right up in the mountains of Idaho, quite shut away from mainstream life. And she didn't go to school and she had to spend all her time preparing for the end of the world that her father was convinced was going to be happening. And also working in the family junkyard, which was this incredibly dangerous place to be especially as her father didn't allow outside medical intervention it all had to be kind of healed by these herbal stuff from her mother but it is the most extraordinary story of willpower because tara begins to educate herself and then she ends up going to the local university and i don't want to give too many spoilers but she eventually comes over here to study in cambridge so it's a most most amazing tale i don't know if either of you have read it no that sounds amazing oh it's just it's a great read she's a great writer as well well. And it's one of those books where I've recommended it to so many people and everyone's just been blown away by it because it's a really inspiring story and quite a difficult read at some points as well. So I can, yeah, highly recommend it
0: yeah i think you recommended it to me a few years ago kate and i blasted through it you just would never believe that this was someone's life and you certainly wouldn't believe i don't know the telling of it the first person this was my experience and now i've overcome it and i'm now a hugely eloquent writer going from someone who had never had a formal education just incredible really 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 interesting I i loved it it was so good
1: Yeah, so that leaves us with Hattie's book recommendation. So what have you picked out for us, Hattie?
0: So I've also gone for an autobiography and it's by a comedian called David Mitchell, who, you know, m- most people probably have heard of him, and it's called Backstory. And I generally, you know, I don't read a lot of biographies, or autobiographies, same as you, Emma. But for some reason, when I do, it's usually comedians. I'm, I'm a big fan of that comic voice, I think, in book form. And not only are they obviously good writers, very witty, they know how to tell a story. I think they offer a really different perspective to a comedian's life versus their onstage persona. So David Mitchell's autobiography here, he talks about his experience growing up, how he didn't have actually as posh an upbringing as you might think if you've seen him on panel shows and stuff like that. And it talks about his experience at Cambridge and his academic life there, and he wasn't as academic. Academic, as people might think, as well. But he was really interested in the footlights side of things. So obviously, that's where he got his first break in acting and comedy and performing. Yeah, it was. It's just a really, really good background.
1: I was just going to say why it's called backstory and the structure of the book. I think is really interesting as well because it stems from the fact that he had a problem with his back and had to do a lot of walking. And is so that why it's called backstory? Oh, right. that's- he do lack. <gasps>
0: Oh, my goodness, because he talks about bouncing on a medicine ball to help his back.
2: Yeah. That's why it's
0: called it. Oh, that is
3: fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) That's just reminding me, I have read Robert Webb, his comedy duo partner, biography, autobiography, How Not to Be a Boy. I love that
1: really that was amazing yeah Um, what an
3: interesting man mm, it was quite interesting we've got it in our lgbt collection here because you don't find a lot of things written by bisexual men so it was really interesting to hear that was a big part of his story so i was like oh wow
1: yeah and i think yeah he he does just tell a very different way of what it is like to be a man and how you don't have to be this one set path i found it yeah it was incredibly moving and really Really thoughtful and very interesting book. Really enjoyed it.
0: I, I, I like, lo- yeah, like I said, I love reading stuff from comedians, especially actually when they get a bit sad and that you see the crown behind the clown.
3: There's an Alan Davies one that I've got on my wish list that I think he's also written about. His mum passed away when he was very little. So that's on my list of things I'd like to read as well. But another, again, as you say, a comedian, but with this kind of backstory that, that, you know, they've had all sorts going on in their lives that the public might not be aware of if they've only seen them on panel shows.
1: I haven't read it, but I understand it's obviously got very dark subject matter too with the abuse from his father. Tough read, I think that would be. Okay, so we've been talking about three very different books, even though they are all biographies of some sort or another. We've been talking about Backstory by David Mitchell, educated by Tara Westover, and Terry Pratchett, A Life with Footnotes by Rob
3: Wilkins.
1: Before we go then, Emma, are there any other exciting reads that you'd like to give a special mention to?
3: Well, I'm a big fan of BorrowBox, so I've been working my way through the audiobooks on there. I've just been listening to some of the Philip Pullman books. The Sally Lockhart series, it's got Anton Lesser that you might know from Game of Thrones. he has got a lovely reading voice. And I think Michael Sheen's done some of them as well. So Secret Commonwealth, it's Michael Sheen reading that. So yeah, big fan of things like that. Very nice to have them in the background where you're, you know, getting on with some housework or to fall asleep to. That's really nice.
1: I'm a huge audiobook fan. I love them for journeys, for dog walking, for cooking. But yeah, for going to sleep too as well. But it can't be too exciting. Otherwise, it keeps me awake. It's got to be good, but not that good.
3: Yeah. (laughs) That little sleep timer button is very handy. Otherwise you wake up in the middle of spoilers. There's a
1: book on uh, English poetry that I listen to as an audio on BorrowBox. And that is perfect for going to sleep too, because it's fascinating, but not, you know, it's not got kind of cliffhanging moments um, that's going to keep me awake. So I drift off listening to somebody explaining why Keats is so great. And so I feel I'm learning something at the same time.
0: When I was doing uni, I thought I could try and absorb information in my sleep. So I would play audiobooks of uh, Seamus Heaney reading Beowulf and stuff like that while I was napping. I don't think it worked, but gave it a good go. Well, I think that's about it from us, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear from you and get some recommendations to top up my ever, ever ever-growing reading list.
3: Oh, It's been lovely speaking to you both. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Emma.
1: We haven't chosen a collection of biographies before and it does take you to some really interesting areas because we were kind of thinking that it's all the same genre but actually it's taken us into comedy it's taken us into you know the craft of writing and about you know the story of redemption which educated is on that sort of theme so a really interesting genre to pick and i think it's one we should go back to
0: definitely and something that we mentioned when we stopped recording with emma was actually that a lot of people don't know that or don't perceive that you can borrow nonfiction books from the library. You know, We're talking about all the amazing ways that you can learn and expand your mind through nonfiction and even borrowing cookery books and things like that. So it's another nice thing to remember that's out there, not just these stories from famous figures or anything like that, but really study resources, informational books, encyclopedias and cookery books. There's so much you can borrow at the library that you might not initially think is out there.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's some brilliant sections on things like crafts and gardening and all kinds of things like that. So if you're just starting out on a new hobby or interest, a really good way to dip your toe into it without balking out too much money. And if you haven't got your hands on one already, there's still time to claim a free Hampshire Libraries tote bag from one of our branches. So find out more how you can claim yours at the link in our show notes.
0: I know that I'm certainly going to be using mine to carry home my library books in style. Anyway, that's about all we've got time for today. So thanks to Olivia Blake for joining us to talk about the Atlas Paradox, Emma from Gosport Discovery Centre and our supporter, BorrowBox. And thank you for listening.
1: I'm Kate Price-McCarthy.
0: And I'm Hattie Dula.